The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I am Brian Sullivan. Get ready, because here come earnings. The future of this incredible rally may hang in the balance as corporate America opens up its books, what to expect, and if it's time to get a little bit defensive. Plus, no money, no problem. The amount of money losing public companies the past year at the highest level since the late 1990s. More on this incredible story ahead. And Friday's jobs number looked pretty good on the surface. But if you dig down a little bit deeper, you may find some red flags. We'll have that, all that, and more on the exchange. But we begin with today's markets and Seema Modi. And I feel like, Seema, every time that you're on the exchange... We hit a new record high. Is that just coincidence or is it you? It perhaps it perhaps could be a coincidence. It could actually be the big week ahead, Brian. We have the countdown to bank earnings tomorrow. Phase one deal expected to be signed on Wednesday. Round things up with China GDP on Friday. The S&P 500 actually notching a new intraday record high of about a half a percent on the day. The stocks that are sending the index higher, the stocks that really worked in 2019, names like Facebook, uh, Salesforce, Tesla now above $500 a share. Oppenheimer raising its target. Tesla now at 518. Uh, take a look at one stock outside of technology that is also working for the market right now. That's Freeport McMoran. This company is expected to report earnings next week. It's currently the best performer on the S&P 500, up nearly 5%. Uh, copper prices are higher and BMO also raising its target on the stock. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much. We'll see you in a bit. All right. Meantime, a new piece in the Wall Street Journal highlights what some might think of as a growing problem. Despite a strong economy and stocks, as you just heard, at record highs, the number of money-losing companies continues to grow. About 40% of U.S.-listed companies have been in the red for the past 12 months, the highest level since the late 1990s. Help explain this and what it might mean, if anything, for the markets, let's bring in Mark Holbert. He is senior columnist for Market Watch, as well as our own Bob Bassani. Mark, it is your column that we snatched and put on television. It's good stuff here. Do we need to worry or is it not as much of a red flag as the headline may seem because so many of these are biotechnology companies? Yeah, I don't think it's as much of a worry. This is a long-term secular trend. It turns out that uh, researchers have gone back actually four or five decades and found that there has been a growing concentration of profits among the very biggest companies. I'll just give you one statistic. In 1975, about 48% of all corporate profits were concentrated in the top 100 companies. That stayed more or less constant up until 1995. In the latest time that they've looked at it, 2015, it had grown to 84%, which is to say basically 100 of the top companies are getting almost all of the profits. And that means almost every other publicly traded corporation is scrambling for the crumbs that fall off their table. Yeah, Bob, when you were down at the NYSE and, you know, you talk about record highs every day, is anybody sort of coming up and whispering in your ear, yeah, but none of these companies are making any money? Does anybody seem to care? 
Um, I think there's a little less that meets the eye to this story. I, I agree with your sort of point on this uh, in the beginning. Uh, the problem is that a good part are biotech, probably 40% of them are biotech, uh, and their numbers are increasing and they always lose money. But secondly, uh, my impression has been over the last uh, 20 years, uh, between 40 and 50% of the companies operate at a loss. I'll tell you what would be more interesting. If you pulled out one-time restructuring items, because restructuring has become more aggressive in the last 20 years, so more people were putting in, more companies are putting these one-time charges that result in losses. I'd like to see the data uh, X that number to get really alarmed by this. So far, though, the, the article that I saw there, I wasn't particularly alarmed by it, no. Mark, it is your article. I mean, what, what, about, what about the data in that? I mean, is it really just maybe one-time tax charges or are companies that maybe should not? By the way, Companies that have gone public lately, the big name ones, have not exactly burned up the charts. I'm looking at you, Uber and Lyft and Blue Apron. I mean, not everything is okay. Well, that's true. But again, this is a a secular phenomenon. So I think we need to abstract ourselves a little bit from the, you know, the most recent uh, earnings season and so forth and look at these broader trends. There's a, uh, an economist at Dartmouth who I follow a lot in this regard, a guy named Jeffrey Parker, who calls it the winner-take-all economy, that we, because of network effects and the Internet and so forth, that we're moving in an era where there is going to be increasing concentration. And again, that's why he calls it the winner-take-all economy. And I think that does have profound implications for what it means for the future, but it doesn't necessarily mean the fact that there are all these losing stocks is in and of itself an alarming statistic. Bob, look carefully at that chart there uh, on the IPOs. We have known for a long time that two thirds of all IPOs don't make any money in the period on which they go public immediately. So I'm I'm not sure that that's a particularly alarming statistic. Uh, It certainly would be better to see it go down. But given how difficult it is for a lot of companies to go public now, there's you see the chart. So, yes, it's gone up a bit since 2010. But if you look back into the 2000, this is a very, very long chart. You're going back 30 years here. Uh, It was back up around. 70% in the later part of the 1990s. Yeah, and I should correct myself, Mark. It was James McIntosh at the Journal. You write so much good stuff, Mark. My my head just got a little bit confused. I'm giving you credit for articles you did not write either way. But when you read that article, did you think, oh, okay, to Bob's point, this is fine? Because when the Journal does write an article like that with that kind of a headline, it appears that at least somebody there thinks this is an important story. Well, yeah, I do think it's important, but it's perhaps important in a different way. For example, one of the implications that I think to draw from this, again, a long-term secular trend, is that it's much more important than ever to be diversified. For example, it's like around 4% of all publicly traded stocks have almost all the corporate profits between them. If you don't happen to own those 4%, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to even equal the market averages. And so I think it has implications for whether you should go indexed or uh, active invested. It has implications for how diversified your actively invested portfolio has to be if you want to go that yep. way. All right. I would well, agree with that. This is why growth has outperformed value for so long. Growth is harder to come by, which is exactly what Mark is implying here. And because of that, people will pay up a lot of money for it, sometimes overpay for it. Well, I, Bob, I would imagine it's pretty easy to grow if you, if you don't care about making any money, right? I'll, I'll lose money on everything I sell, but I'll make it up in volume. Bob Pisani and Mark Holbert... Thank you guys very much. Appreciate it. All right. Boeing officially has a new CEO, but the company is still facing the same problem, moving past the 737 MAX crisis and a corporate culture that, by the way, has raised some serious eyebrows. Phil LeBeau is live in Chicago. Phil, can new CEO Dave Calhoun turn things around at Boeing? 
Well, he believes he can, and a lot of people look at his pedigree and they say, sure, this is a guy who has vast experience, and he can turn around the culture. But the, the trail that was left by Dennis Mullenberg and really his administration, if you want to call it that, uh, when he was CEO, uh, this is one that people are struggling to get past especially the exit plan and the compensation or lack of compensation. This was announced Friday afternoon. He got no severance. He's forfeiting over $14 million in stock awards, but he's still getting $62 million in deferred compensation, some of that including pension. That's not a golden parachute. That's what he was entitled to over his years of working at Boeing. As for new CEO Dave Calhoun, his base salary is $1.4 million. But you have to look at terms of what kind of extra bonuses might be possible. If he gets the max up and running, safely returning to service, that could be worth $7 million. All told, in his first year, he could earn up to $28 million, depending on whether or not he hits certain incentives and benchmarks. He has said, and he said it today again in an email to employees that was sent out, the 737 MAX is his primary focus. And Brian, what you can expect is a lot of streamlining of the process. This is a company that has been muddling along over the last three months as they've been working their way through the 737 MAX. Expect Dave Calhoun to make quick decisions when merited so that they can move forward as quickly as possible. But I would imagine one of those quick decisions is not going to be just pulling out dates about return to service sort of out of thin air and shocking regulators to the point of causing them great anger. No, and remember, one of the first calls he made after the board said, you will be our next CEO, this was in the end of December, he called Steve Dixon, the head of the FAA, and he said, we want to be regulated, we want to work with you. Huge change in terms of the the comments that were coming from Boeing to the FAA. Phil Lebeau, on the Boeing story, Phil, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. You bet. Well, if you want to be in retail, you'd better hire some really good computer programmers because technology is becoming a bigger and bigger presence in the retail industry. It's as evidenced by who's attending this year's big NRF, National Retail Federation show. Courtney Reagan, of course, is there. And Courtney, you know, you're at a retail conference, but I'm looking at Microsoft (laughs) and Google and many HP behind you. You know, tech's influence in your sector is only getting larger. That's exactly right, Brian. I was going to say, this is probably the techiest retail conference of the year, but the influence has only grown tremendously over the years. You called out some of the big names. You've got players like Microsoft, Google, SAP, Oracle, JDA, HP, I could go on and on, that are participating here. But you also have thousands of smaller players, these startups, and that's a group that's really grown tremendously. So yeah, they're offering cloud solutions. They're offering scheduling software, but they're also offering things like 3D body scanning to lower returns or systems that can turn nearly any space into a micro-fulfillment center. They've got autonomous robots. They've got drones that can help you pick packages in warehouse. These are all features here that have become more and more prevalent over the years. And even Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson was on stage here, and he was talking about how Starbucks artificial intelligence program, Deep Brew, is helping sort of take away some of these tasks from baristas, humans, so that the computers can do it, so that the humans can actually spend time reconnecting with customers in stores, which sounds super ironic to say it's artificial intelligence that's helping us improve our consumer connection to humans, human to human. But that's the world we live in. Okay, well, speaking of human beings, you actually spoke with one yesterday. The Kohl's CEO 
And she admitted her disappointment with the holiday quarter. But one company who was not disappointed, if anything, maybe sort of undershot it, is Lululemon. That stock is up 4% right now. What went right for Lulu? What went wrong for Kohl's? It's so interesting, Brian, if you look at shares of Lululemon. They've been higher by almost 90% over the last year. So hitting new all-time highs today, but maybe they'd be higher if they hadn't had such a run. So what's Lulu doing right? Basically everything. I mean, truly, they reaffirmed their earnings forecast and their revenue forecast. Comparable sales, they think, will be stronger than they had previously expected. And J.P. Morgan's Matt Boss actually says if history's any guide, look at the last five years when Lululemon pre-announces here in January ahead of speaking at the ICR conference, they actually almost end up undershooting it when you go back and see the full quarter reported. So Lulu's just hitting on those retail fundamentals. They're offering great products that consumers love and want to pay for. And by the way, pay for at full price. Sales is not really part of their MO, even though we live in this very promotional environment. And this holiday season was no exception. And then you look at Kohl's. And what happened at Kohl's, it appears, is that women's was their weak point. And that's a problem because it's 30% of the business. And then when you add in women's accessories, that's 40% of the business. And of that, 70% of that is private brands, which means brands you can only get at Kohl's. And if that doesn't excite customers to come in, that's going to be a big issue. But CEO Michelle Goss says she's got her arms around it. She's working through a plan. They have an investor day coming up. So she's going to tell us more about it then. All right. Enjoy the NTF. I mean, the NRF. Courtney Reagan, thank you very much. (laughs) All right, coming up on the exchange, the future of this rally is in the hands of America's balance sheets. As earnings season kicks off, will companies deliver or is a little time to get defensive maybe? Plus, it's not just the big banks that had a stellar 2019. The payment stock soared as well. Will investors continue to bet that consumers will keep swiping? And maybe a trillion reasons to love Google. Stick around. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Earnings season is kicking off this week in a big way with 26 S&P 500 companies reporting their quarterly numbers and Refinitiv forecasts that fourth quarter earnings growth will be down six tenths of one percent. More on with Wall Street. What did they are expecting with Jason Brady, CEO of Thornburg Investment Management and Stephen Whiting? Global Chief Investment Strategist at City Private Bank. Jason, I'll start with you because when I look inside Thornburg's Investment Income Builder Fund, I see that nearly one quarter of that fund, 24%, is financials. This week, you got JPM, Wells Fargo, Citigroup. Are you expecting great things from this important sector? I think we're expecting good things. I think to expect great things would be uh, even lower NPLs, uh, a much stronger economy, none of which are really in the cards for us. But keep in mind the expectation of the sector is extremely low. You have uh, relative to 2008, 7, 8, everyone's expecting if there's going to be some challenges, it's going to hit large cap banks. 
But those banks have been highly regulated, low valuations, high yields, and really the risk in that sector is more in the small and mid-cap bank space. Stephen, are there better markets for our viewers and listeners' money than the U.S. equity markets? Well, look, we like the U.S. market. Uh, I think that this earnings season just passed will be a one and a half, two percent up quarter. Um, I think the full year 2020 will be a seven percent gain. You know, we should be looking right now it's financial markets. The exact average. Well, uh, you know, and again, we had a 12 percent return in equities in the United States. If we look at the two years, you know, last year was up 32 percent. The outperformance of the United States was pretty extreme with a nine percent nine percentage points of outperformance. If you think about European industrials, European financials, um, some of the Asian industrial companies that have still are suffering from trade war fears, I think that those will probably bounce back more in the near term. What we really like, and this is global, will be companies that don't need outside financing that can raise current dividend payments uh, to uh, their owners Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and abroad Uh, this year and next. And I think that those firms will really be the right investments after the bounce back effects are out of the way. Well, this segment's a police song, Jason, because I see synchronicity, because also when I look at that fund, your single biggest holding is the French telecom company Orange. You also have China Mobile and Taiwan Semi. So you're looking outside of the United States as well. Absolutely. Thornburg Investment Income Builder is a global portfolio, and we've tended to skew outside the U.S. because that's where the income is. And what we're looking to do is build income over time, provide investors significant yields. So you look at some of the names you talk about, they are, they are cheap from an EV EBITDA perspective. They're generally self-financing their cash flow generative. When you have dividend payers, they are generally, and we look for, ones that are generating their own cash flow. I agree to the extent you have a pullback, uh, companies that are self-financing are going to be able to ride that out much better than, than other kinds of companies that you, could, that you could invest in. Well, think about, two, just sort of where investors are. If we want to take a look at the big picture, we've had two years here where macro policy risks threatened the continuation of the expansion. All of these risks have generally gone by the wayside, at least the ones that have been identified. We're going to have a trade deal with China this week. The Federal Reserve is easing credit, providing more financing to uh, the bond in the stock, uh, the bond market, whether it's Treasuries or MBS right now, and that will continue for some time. And we take a look at yield opportunities, even in riskier fixed income markets. These yield opportunities are lower. Last year, investors pulled $235 billion um, out of uh, equity funds globally. And that's why, again, you know, the pain trade for many has been a higher and higher market. Quickly, Jason, what's the biggest global risk still on the table to you? I actually, you know, disagree a little bit uh, with the forward uh, outlook on the Fed uh, with Stephen. I think the Fed is really much more on hold today. They've, they would have much lower, uh, the, the likelihood that they continue to cut is much lower unless we can run into serious issues. So for me, it's continued grinds and global manufacturing with low ISMs across the world. And if the Fed starts to cut, it's going to be because we're in a recession. I don't view that same tail when we saw all the way through 19 as continuing into 2020. We don't see the Fed cutting, yep. right? It would take a shock, but the Fed is reversing quantitative tightening from the last couple of years. I think industrial and trade activity, ISM readings, PMIs all bounce back before the first quarter is over. Okay, good discussion and a good friendly debate. Very gentlemanly, and we appreciate it. Jason and Stephen, thank you very much. We'll have you both on again soon. Coming up, deep discounts not enough to get people shopping at this retailer, apparently. The stock on pace for its worst day in five years. A name behind that ugly chart ahead. Plus, why the headline number, the last jobs number, may not be telling you the entire story. 
about the American economy. And be sure to check out the CNBC app. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. And welcome back to The Exchange. It is a big week for the financials, with some of the biggest banks reporting their numbers. J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, City, they're out tomorrow. Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Wednesday. If that was not enough, Morgan Stanley out on Thursday. And here are some of the key macro things to watch, as reported by Wilfred Frost, who apparently will be getting zero sleep this week. Can strong loan growth continue to offset lower interest rates? Will recent broker price wars eat into margins at the wealth management divisions? And will revenues that could be flat this year, the focus could shift to cost control and digital distribution. And with banks rallying over the last year, City the best performer up 40 percent, the rest of the big banks not behind on performance. It is fair to say that the setup going into these earnings may not be the easiest one. All right, a lot to focus on and watch for, and we'll have that for you certainly all week long right here on CNBC. But right now, let's focus on news outside of the world of money and business. Sue Herrera and a CNBC News Update. Sue. Thank you so much, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. A major cleanup is underway today from the south to the Midwestern parts of the U.S. after a wild storm system caused widespread destruction. Eleven people were killed and at least one tornado has been confirmed. The Supreme Court rejecting an appeal from a Massachusetts woman who pushed her boyfriend to commit suicide via text. The decision leaves Michelle Carter's involuntary manslaughter conviction in place. The boyfriend took his own life at age 18. Carter was 17 at the time. An Australian warship is setting sail for the Middle East to help protect vital shipping lanes through the Straits of Hormuz. Australia's defense minister told reporters the ship will play an important role in protecting the country's economic and oil interests in that region. Meantime, the sports world helping Australians impacted by their country's wildfires. The International Tennis Federation and the Wimbledon, French Open and U.S. Open tournaments announcing a collective pledge of an additional $400,000 towards relief efforts already underway in that country. This follows individual players who made pledges of their own over the weekend. The Australian Open begins a week from today. You're up to date, Brian. That's the news update this hour. Back to you. All right, Sue Sue, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, on deck. Could now, right now, finally be the time to buy and own GE stock? Yeah, GE. One analyst says yes. We're going to dig in and find out why. Plus, look out below. Why this retailer's stock price taking a nosedive today? And apparently the doctor will see you now. It's one of the biggest weeks for healthcare kicks off. We're going to take a look at the role that Washington will play in your healthcare this year. 
The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. An electric quarter. Here comes another trillion. Porsche speeds ahead and taking care of your chickens. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here now are Kate Rogers, Robert Frank, and Seema Modi. Here we go. First up, a stock thing. Deutsche Bank is out with a new short-term investment idea, and it is General Electric, GE. And that called boosting the stock about 3% right now, putting it on pace to break a four-day losing streak. Deutsche Bank saying while it's difficult to identify any positive catalysts this quarter, it expects GE to deliver an earnings beat and good guidance for the year, along with a positive statutory insurance review, whatever the heck that is. So basically they're saying, Seema, no catalysts, but buy the stock anyway. Yeah, not a lot of positive, but it won't get worse. And I think that's really been the big question related to General Electric. When I spoke to their CEO, Larry Culp, after earnings in October, he really reminded me that this is a transformation turnaround story that will take a lot of time. His main goal since becoming CEO in October of 2018 is to uh, reduce their debt, raise as much cash as possible by selling out their Baker Hughes stake and also continuing the sale of Biopharma to Dana Hare for $21 billion. But to your point, it's going to take some time. Yes, the stock is up about 16 percent over the past three months, but well off the all-time highs it hit, 58 a share back in 2000. Remember those days? Remember but that's days? but that's Robert Frank when they had GE Capital. Yeah. And GE Capital, yeah. as I called it one time, GE was a hedge fund that happened to make light bulbs. Right. And they always had GE Capital where they could find little earnings juice when they needed. Yeah. Now they make locomotives, airplane engines, and oil wells, effectively. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the power piece of it is so important, and yet we don't know what the max situation is going to bring for GE Obviously, there's delay upon delay. That, that future, if it looks certain a month ago, is now even less so. And they've got investigations. So you can see the negatives. You can't see what the upside surprises are that they're talking about. They just say, look, we don't know why, but we're going to get an upgrade on the earnings for 2020, and we're going to have a stronger-than-expected okay. quarter. We don't know why, but we will. Our okay. analysts just running out of ideas that, yeah. at this point. They're like, yeah, it's might as well good. Yeah, yeah, we got no kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's like Ishtar, worse. the movie. It can't, it can't keep getting worse, can it? And then it just keeps getting worse. All right, next up, Alphabet. You know it is Google. they got to just change their name back to Google. Continuing to march toward $1 trillion in market cap, despite being a little bit late to the game. Company would become the fourth technology company to cross that 13-digit threshold, currently ahead of Amazon, which has since pulled back, crossing the mark last year. Evercore, meanwhile, is boosting its price target on Alphabet to 1600 from 1350 saying it expects Google to continue to dominate in search and video advertising. Kate Rogers, also YouTube. I know that search is everything for them, but God, YouTube, some people think, is a hundred or two hundred billion dollar company if it was by itself? It is, and I think we—it's easy for us to forget about it because all of the people who are using YouTube are all of these younger kids. I mean, some of these YouTube celebrities, the amounts of money they're bringing—the eight-year-old who made like twenty-seven million yeah. unboxing it, toys, exactly. Yeah. And and it's, that's something that I don't use all the time, so it's not something that I, you know, have at the top of my mind. But I think that obviously toy unboxing videos. No, but I mean YouTube in general. Just all of these huge stars. I'm more of like a Facebook, Instagram yes. type of a user. They also note that ambitious long-range projects like driverless cars, their foray into medicine and drugs, that hasn't paid off yet. So what does that look like uh, for the stock moving forward? I mean, Do you know what the first billion-dollar company in the United States was? Oh, gosh. The first billion? 
Billion dollar company? Billion dollar company. Hmm. U.S. Steel, 1901. It's going to be 1901. I was going to say something like, you know, some radio company, the RCA in 1922. The first $100 billion company was IBM in 1987. Question for me is, who is the first trillionaire? I think it's going to be Jeff Bezos. What would Amazon need to be for Jeff Bezos to be a trillionaire? Would have to be $84 trillion before... But you Definitely. still think he will be the? I, first I think he could, yeah. Well, it yeah. speaks to the narrow leadership already. Yeah. Technology. Some people suggest Vladimir Putin might be there. a trillionaire. That's true. I well, mean, then, you, you know, in sort of the if you add up all of Russia and it is his, yeah, he's probably take a, a couple of slices of <laughs> Norvalis nickel, <laughs> minus a little a bit of Luke oil over here, yeah. and a Rosneft over here. <laughs> right. You get to a trillion pretty easily. All right, topic three: the luxury auto market is rolling on. Vorsha. 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 I just they made up a new car I, company. My favorite what do you drive? I drive a Vorsha. No, it's Volkswagen and Porsche together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a Porsche with a VW engine. Yeah. The Carmen Ghia. Bar- All right, Volkswagen Bar- owned Porsche reported record global sales in 2019, delivering 280,000 vehicles or 10% more than the year before. Meantime, Rolls Royce setting a new record with its own jumping sales, 25% helped by its new $400,000 SUV. And now Ferrari is looking to get in on the action when it reports at the end of the month after raising its full-year guidance last quarter. But not all is well, Robert Frank, in the luxury auto markets. Those cars doing well. Let's just focus on the negative. What happened yeah. to Aston Martin? Oh, there's a lot wrong with that company. I mean, it's the products. It's the management. What's wrong with the product? Good-looking car, the, I think. Yeah, but they all look the same. I mean, the Vanquish, the, the Vantage, the DBA, I mean, all these cars look the same. They're very expensive, and they've got so much competition now. Now, it's all riding on the DBX, the SUV, but this is going to be a $200,000-plus-dollar SUV. There are between Porsche, Mercedes, uh, Lambo has done great with its SUV. The number of very expensive SUVs out there, just too much choice. And now the question is, does China's Geely come in and help Aston Martin, which is dealing with a lot of debt ever since their IPO in London in September of 2018? The stock has just been on a free fall. Yeah. Uh, but even China could potentially not provide the rescue line that Aston Martin is looking for. Maybe the Formula One guy. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. And, and outside of them, there's no other buyer. So they, they've got it. You DB- wonder, I mean, how much money is out there, Kate, right? I mean, these right. cars are so expensive. And I guarantee these are not people that are buying on credit. Look at how much wealth has been created just in the United States over the past year. So people are selling their Apple stock to buy a Rolls-Royce Cullinan? They're not selling it, but they feel wealthy. They have that wealth. And around the world, global growth, as Seema knows, wasn't too bad last year. When your, Kate, when your driver picks you up in the morning to come and do Worldwide Exchange, would you prefer them to be in a Rolls-Royce or a Ferrari? I drive myself in my Honda CRV. There you go. (laughs) But it's all SUVs. I mean, you talk about Porsche, two thirds of those sales are SUVs. Lamborghini, most of their growth was their SUV. Rolls Royce. I drove the Urus last I drove it last year. It's awesome. It was fun, except I was in Florida and it was like 20 miles an hour and it was very awkward to only go 20 miles an hour in the Lamborghini. So all these traditional sports car companies, what's driving the growth is not sports cars, SUVs and then EVs. I'm just waiting for the new electric Vorsche. The, the, the new electric Vorsche I plug Butter, in. Butterfick new. Power with coal. I'm with Kate. I, I'm good with a Honda. I don't need any of these fancy cars. It's a depreciating asset. You buy it. I got yeah, leather but, seats, though, and let me tell you. Feels Ryan, pretty good. we're, we're <laughs> insecure, so we need it. I drive a 2010 <laughs> Jeep Wrangler with yeah. roll-up windows. You've seen it. Yeah. Mine's it's literally, I still have the roll-up window. Excellent. Because it that, works. Yeah, that's why my left arm is so strong. <laughs> strong like Ukraine. All right, next up, shares of five below are on discount today, hitting their lowest level in over a year. 
The stock is on pace for its worst day since 2015 after the retailer reported disappointing holiday sales. The CEO blaming six fewer shopping days between Thanksgiving and Christmas this year. Really, Kate Rogers, everybody, I'm told, has the same calendar. Every retailer lives in the same they year. Do, but it's something that Sorry, retailers- I'm on the Vorsha calendar. <laughs> Six fewer days. Uh, retailers had been hedging this before the season even got here. And I think it does matter. Shoppers didn't have as much time to get out there. I mean, five below. But that's at every store. Yeah. I the know. same amount of time everywhere. I know. But the, there are certain categories of stores that are just not doing as well. I mean, Macy's also called this out. Uh, their performance, the stock actually got a nice boost because it wasn't as bad as people had projected, but still negative over the holiday season. I mean, this retail environment is just something else. I said the other day, I was at Target, though, on Black Friday. And you can see just in terms of foot traffic, people aren't there the way they used to be years ago. It's completely shifted, and they've added more people uh, allocated to pick up and delivery because that's the way people want to shop. They want to do it online. Well, five so five bucks. below is not yeah. going to do a, well. But that's a, this is a remember, totally different store. You ever yeah. been in one? Yes. My daughter loves this store. It's, it's, yeah. like, it's, it's like it's five, totally five pound Mike and Ike bags, yeah. beach balls, bunch cell of phone cases. The reason, the reason What'd you say? A bunch of waste. Just a bunch of stuff that you You're play. calling Mike and Ike the best candy ever created a Whoa, waste? We don't have enough time to debate that one. The reason that it's done well and that it's Amazon proof is that people want to go to the store. Because you don't know what you're going to find. But that's what makes them suffer when the calendar's shorter because you can't do it online. There you go. Discount retail. But discount retail in general is a very hard game to play. The price point is already so low. So if your incremental costs go up even by a bit, your margins get hurt. And in their latest earnings call, I'm a dork, I looked it up, gross margins decreased approximately 120 base points because of tariffs. So this is a business that really relies on a lot of the manufacturing happening. And the, that is a great point. Little, a lot of the stuff, to your point, is, what did you call it? Dorky. The, no, the Tra- other. Trashy. T- trash, <laughs> trash, or junk. And the, the tiny Vorsches, the remote controls they sell, they didn't sell well. Either. They did not sell. <laughs> All I know is Seaman's going to bring a giant bag of Mike and Ike's on set next time. Uh, tariffed up. Apparently. And finally, this is great. Seattle Seahawks running back Marshawn Lynch, beast mode, has a history of avoiding reporters' questions after the game or giving like a one-word answer. But after last night's loss, he used the press conference to share some financial advice to younger players. Listen up. It's a vulnerable time for a lot of these young dudes, you feel me? They don't be taking care of their chicken right, you feel me? So if they was me or if I had an opportunity to let these little uh, Young Sahibs know something. I say take care of y'all money, African, because that shit don't last forever. And take care of y'all bread. So when y'all done, you go ahead and take care of yourself. So while y'all at it right now, take care of y'all bodies. You know what I mean? Don't take care of y'all chicken. You feel me? Don't take care of y'all mentals, because look, we ain't lasting that long. And he knows the thing about taking care of chicken, colloquialism for money. Having earned $57 million over 12 years in the NFL and reportedly millions more in endorsements. And what he's saying is this is a guy who retired for the better part of a year. So he knew what it was like to not have an active paycheck coming in. No matter how much you make, suddenly every month, people aren't putting your money into your bank or your chicken so into I, that pen. I'm announcing right now that I'm officially changing my title from wealth reporter to chicken reporter. <laughs> is that senior chicken reporter or chief? Because it's very sensitive in this industry. Yep. Poultry, just all kinds of poultry. Head poultry guy. <laughs> HP G. No, look, it, look, one out of six declare bank, one out of six NFL reporter, uh, uh, players Probably. declare bankruptcy. You know, it's, we all know the stories. And for someone who's been in the league and then left, he can come out from the other side and say, here's what you got to focus on. Because you get on. used to that money rolling in yeah. every month. And even for our audience, forget about what you do for a living, Kate. I mean, it could be whatever industry it is. There will be a day when you wake up 
and there's not a paycheck there. Well, and I think it's important, you know, we're all laughing about the term that he used. It went viral. Hopefully people hear it and they think about taking better care of their money. And you often don't hear these stories uh, until it's too late. So it's nice to hear from a player who's still in the league, doing well, obviously retired for a little bit, came back. But um, giving out advice to people and hopefully some of the younger players listen to him. Yeah, as a, you know, we sit there and watch the games and we think, oh, this is so much fun. But at the end of the day, this is a cutthroat industry. Contracts are not guaranteed. A lot of these players get injured after maybe three or four years mm-hmm. um, on the field. And so it's a good reminder that you got to take care of your, uh, of your finances, chicken. your chicken, whatever you want to call it, and, and do it early. I think the average length of a player is two and a half years, something like that. Wow. Average time in the league you know, is only two and a half to three years, and the odds are infinitesimally yeah. small. I will push back a little. It didn't go viral. It was a nationally televised press conference. Well, I mean, we're all talking about it. Buy a lot of Mike and Ike's for 57 million bucks. Kate, Robert, (laughs) Seema, thank you both very much. All right. The headline jobs number suggests a tight labor market, but hours and wages could be signaling maybe some trouble ahead. Steve Leisman is ahead with why. Stick around. And a look at the headline numbers in recent jobs reports will suggest a tight labor market. But if you dig into the wages data, there are red flags that could point to weaker economic growth ahead. Steve Leisman joining us now with more on why. What did you see that yeah. caught your attention? It's pretty interesting, Brian. The tight labor market continues to offer a mystery to economists. Why aren't wages rising faster and why is the work week falling? Take a look at the data here. The work week has actually declined by 0.3 hours while the unemployment rate has fell, fallen from 4.9 to 3.5%. Now take a look at wages. After increasing nearly four years, wage, decli- wage gains have declined most of 2019. Definitely looking toppy there. J.P. Morgan writes, the generally soft pace of wage growth in this expansion isn't too much of a puzzle given extremely weak labor productivity growth. But the deceleration of wage growth over the course of 2019 is more mysterious. I'll give you three reasons here why that might be the case. First of all, you have a substitution effect where young workers are replacing older workers who are making higher salaries. You have a change in the mix, perhaps, where low-wage retail and leisure and hospitality jobs are replacing uh, manufacturing jobs. And then there's this issue, Brian, of monopsony, where the monopsony, monopsony is the, it's opposite of, of, of monopoly. monopoly, where you have a monopoly, essentially, on the purchase, and in this case, the purchase of labor. And that's a, a, a situation where, it, yeah, I think you know something about this, in rural towns where there's only one manufacturing employer, where there used to be maybe more than one, there's no choice. So they have essentially a monopsony on the purchase of labor so they can set the wages regardless of how tight the labor market may be in that town. And that's why, that's why rural pay scales have fallen by so much. I think that's a big... people out of manufacturing have to go work in the services industry and take normally about a 30% Big part of it. And, and, and the, uh, the bottom line here is if you have modest wage gains, you may have modest consumer spending and modest economic growth. All right. It's an important story there, Steve, especially in those communities. Thank you very much. All right. Visa and MasterCard, they've been posting huge stock gains over the past year with both hitting record highs. Will this rather under-the-radar rally push into earnings season? What's your best play here? We'll talk about it coming up. And welcome back to The Exchange. As stocks continue hitting record highs, one sector is riding an under-the-radar rally, and that is the payment stocks. Take a look at this. In 2019, MasterCard rallied nearly 60%, Visa up 42%. The digital payment names, PayPal and Square, also saw a jump. 
And your next guest says she remains bullish on the sector and there's more room to run this year. Joining us now is Lisa Ellis, senior equity analyst covering the payment space at Moffitt Nathanson. Lisa, welcome. What did MasterCard and Visa do so well that they deserve 42 and 60 percent gains? Hey, they just keep cranking out the earnings growth year in, year out. MasterCard and Visa have compounded earnings at 20 percent now for 10 years straight. Is that just them doing something right or is that the consumer just spending more and they take a small slice of everything we spend? (laughs) That's consumer spending more, but really it's about consumers using cards more and cash less. Every year these guys do about 12 percent volume growth, most of which is just coming from people substituting cash and using cards. But I'm going to knock them a bit. What 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 does that mean they're doing well because we choose to use cards? I mean, little. What role do they play in that when there's basically just three or four card companies in the, in the world? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the key thing they do is they create that trust. They are the ones that authorize the transaction. So when you walk into a store anywhere in South Africa, you walk into a gift shop, they verify that you are who you said you are and that you have the money and you're able to just hand over a piece of plastic and walk out with, you know, a handbag or a pair of shoes. It's pretty amazing, actually, that you can do that anywhere in the world, 24 by 7, without cash, that just with a piece of plastic. And they're really the network. Um, and you still like both stocks, but you think that the, your best idea for this year is Square. That's right. Love a MasterCard and Visa. Can't go wrong with those two. But specifically going into 2020, after a little bit of a rocky 2019, we like Square the best. Why is that? Uh, I like their system, by the way. They flip the screen to you and you just kind of sign and hit no receipt. <laughs> yeah, so well, Square's done a little bit of a re- strategic reset. They divested Caviar, this underperforming food delivery business. Which they only bought a couple years ago, Lisa. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, but less, you know, we're glad they got rid of it and they're moving on. Um, and they've also got this really hot Cash App product, which is one of these consumer digital banking products. It's kind of like a PayPal wallet, like a It's Venmo. literally called Cash App. Literally that, called Cash that's App. That's theirs. That's theirs. And and, uh, and literally a couple, you know, 20 million or so consumers are using that to send each other money. They're using it as a debit account uh, day to day. And that business is literally growing almost 100 percent for them. A hundred percent? hundred percent. Per year? In two and a half years, it's gone from one million in revenues to running run rate of over 600 million in revenues. Wow. Not bad. Makes sense. Lisa Ellis, <laughs> Moffat Nathan, best pick is square, but says you can't go wrong. With Visa or MA as well. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right, we've got a news alert for you in the IPO world. Dow Jones reporting that Albertsons, the grocery store chain that used to be public, then was taking private, is preparing for an IPO again. The IPO could value Albertsons at around $19 billion. company last filed for paperwork for an IPO back in 2015. Biotech as a group falling about 1% today as the J.P. Morgan Chase Healthcare Conference gets underway. Up next... A top analyst gives us his roadmap for healthcare in an election year and why certain parts of biotech could be the big winner. That's next. The massive and important JP Morgan Chase Healthcare Conference kicking off today in San Francisco, where one of the topics of conversation is sure to be the elections and the impact on the sector. Regardless if President Trump is reelected or Democrat wins, the push will be for drug pricing reform and patient affordability. With more on what you can expect and maybe how to invest around it is Neil Mejia. He is senior advisor on healthcare policy at Guggenheim Securities. I don't know how you do your job this year, Neil, to be honest with you, because 
everybody's talking about drug pricing reform. Then you got to talk about, you know, Obamacare slash ACA, whatever you're going to call it. And you have candidates who, by the way, some of whom are near or leading the polls, talking about ending the world of private health insurance. What are the themes in investing given that macro backdrop? Well, chaos is our uh, business, Brian. Thanks for having me on to talk about it. Um, so, so although there's a lot going on, I think it effectively boils down to four scenarios that we might see. On the one hand, there is the chance that we move way to the left uh, if the right combination of candidates and uh, policies are discussed. The more likely scenarios I view as uh, a real battle over the ACA. Uh, the status quo would be the next likely scenario. And then there is what I would call, say, a 20% chance that we will see some near-term actions that could have a real impact on various sectors. Like, Dad, what would be the biggest thing that, that, that may not be a probability, but it's a possibility, and would have a massive impact? Well, I mean, clearly the ACA being overturned by the Supreme Court would be the biggest thing. I, I don't see that as a likely scenario, but, um, you know, the more impactful sort of shockwave that could come through would be if we really did see a lurch to the left uh, pe- people um, don't fully appreciate that while uh, President Trump has been aligned with a lot of the more left-wing Democrats on the drug industry for the last couple of years in terms of price controls and other ways of uh, looking to address that issue, on the insurance industry and in the ACA Obamacare space, he's really been more in line with the Republicans, and clearly he's talked a lot about uh, looking to pull back on Obamacare and replace it with something else. And so to the extent that the battle goes there... Uh, which I would view as more of a summer to fall type of uh, time frame, I think that could create some real volatility, not so much in the drug stocks, Mm -hmm. but more in the hospital space and in the insurance space. So what are some macro investing themes? How can we make money off this chaos, Neil? Well, well, I think on the pharma side, uh, there has been a, a, I mean, look, pharma has been in 25th place out of 25 industries for the last year or two in terms of public opinion. So there's been a sort of a drag in terms of expectations and what might be done to them on the policy front. And I think we're going to see that calm down uh, in the first part of this year. Uh, we have seen price increases so far that seem relatively uh, in line or maybe even a little below what we've seen in the past on average. And so if that continues and uh, things play out the way we expect them to, I would imagine things will calm down for pharma. At the same time, I do think they're going to ramp up on the hospitals and commercial insurance side because what we're going to see is um, a real sort of relitigation of the whole uh, ACA, Obamacare type of debate, which was so good for the hospitals, especially um, in terms of coverage and reducing their uncompensated care costs. Uh, so that, that's a real area to watch. Neil, Neil Major Guggenheim, we'll let you get back to the conference. I know it's just kicking off. Great stuff, as always, Neil. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.